That's pianist and 2011 National Medal of Arts recipient Andre Watts playing Liszt's Transcendental Etude No. 10. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Andre Watts burst upon the music world at the age of 16 when he made his debut with Leonard Bernstein and the New York Philharmonic in one of their young people's concerts. Two weeks later, Bernstein invited him back to the Philharmonic to substitute for the ailing Glenn Gould. When Watts sounded his last note of the performance, the entire orchestra joined the audience in giving him a standing ovation, and a career was launched. The son of a Hungarian pianist and an African-American soldier, Watts spent his early childhood in Europe before the family moved to Philadelphia. He began studying the piano when he was six. Sixty years later, to the delight of millions, he's still at it. A brilliant classical pianist who's a perennial favorite with audiences, orchestras, and conductors around the world. Celebrated for his superb technique, passionate intensity, and wide-ranging repertoire, Andre Watts is equally at home with recitals, broadcasts, and recordings. A much-honored artist who's played before royalty in Europe and heads of government in countries all around the world, Andre Watts has received many awards. And now, the highest award given an artist by the United States government, the National Medal of Arts. I spoke to Andre Watts last year, backstage at Baltimore's Meyerhoff Symphony Hall. I began our conversation by asking him what drew him to the piano. Did he have a choice? Or was it made for him? It was made for me. Actually, I made the initial decision because I studied the violin and my mother didn't want me to be a musician, but she insisted that I study music. And so I studied the violin and uh, after about six months, I said, you said I just had to do music. Couldn't I do the piano instead of the violin? And she said, yeah, she didn't care. And so actually, in that sense, I chose it. But then after that, as happens to so many musicians... It chose me in the sense that, you know, you're a child. You don't have autonomy over your life. You don't really make life decisions. Those are made for you. And so, you know, I I mean, my teacher, my mother had me audition for the Philadelphia Orchestra, and I won one of those auditions, you know, with lots of other kids. But I got to play with the Philadelphia Orchestra, and then so that started the ball rolling, put it on the road of practicing more because it looked like Wow, gee, looks like that's what the kid is really good at, you know. (laughs) Better at that than math and science and all that. So, uh, and then, you know, it went on. I auditioned a few more times. And by the time I was 16, you know, I I did the Young People's Concerts with Bernstein and all that kind of thing. My mother had to sign the contract. You know, I was underage. Is it difficult to make the transition to, to move from playing as a child to playing as an adult to no longer being the prodigy? That happens a lot to musicians. If careers start early, what happens is that by the time they become adults, you should take it away from me because I wouldn't want to compare myself with him anyway, but uh, you can see that it has difficulties even for people much more gifted than someone like me. If you take a man who really kissed by the gods like Yehudi Menuhin, Yehudi Menuhin, when he became an adult, so to speak, you know, so a year or two or three after he passed 21, he realized that he hadn't actually chosen this profession. 
and he had to restart, so to speak. And that becomes a, a difficult situation for a lot of people. Was that true for you as well? Mine was easy, um, but I got lucky. Um, mine was easy because when I was 23, I became quite ill, and I was told I wouldn't be able to play for six months. And it came at a time where I was unprepared for some concerts I had promised anyway. So it was a perfect blessing, and I thought, God, six months of vacation. I mean, I wasn't feeling well at that time, but I thought, well, I'll feel good in a month or two, and then I'll have a couple of months off. And after about, I don't know, three weeks, I started trying to make deals with the doctor about, well, could I, could I practice for an hour a day? And once I got him to let me practice, I could be at the piano an hour a day, and then I, in another two weeks, two hours a day, then I started working on him. How, how soon could I play a concert? When could I start? And by the time that rolled around, I took me you know a couple of weeks to recognize, oh my gosh. So, I mean, that means you really did choose yourself. Huh? I mean, you've been fighting and struggling and maneuvering to get to play. So that was a blessing in disguise, and if you want to call it that. That was a blessing for me to really, well, to discover that, but, but to have the opportunity to choose it was really a blessing. Do you remember what you missed? Well, I actually missed the music itself. I would enjoy a lot of music, but part, a big, enormous part of my enjoyment of music is actually doing it myself. It's actually making the sound and, and, and changing, adjusting, fixing, you know, altering, manipulating the sound yourself. Uh, part of that, I mean, it's, of course, partly habit. I've been doing it for so long, but it's, I mean, it's now a need. You know, it's, a, it's like an addiction. So that's a great part of what music means to me is playing. I want to talk just very briefly about practice because, yes, you were a prodigy, but practicing still... I would imagine, is a trial for a kid. Was that true for you? Oh, yes. I mean, practicing is hard work. And, you know, you don't find many children who want to do hard work. It's difficult. I mean, you don't find many adults who want to do hard work. <laughs> and uh, practicing is, um, well, I'm sure everyone's different. You know, one tr I should speak for myself, not for other people. If I don't think carefully about what I'm saying or even think carefully to myself privately about what I'm feeling and thinking, you know, the superficial response is, oh, well, come on, let's go out and have a great meal and have phenomenal food and great wine and then I'll have a great cigar and I'll sleep late and I won't practice. And, you know, superficially, sure, okay, yeah, we give lip service to I don't want to do the work. In actuality, what happens is if, you know, it happens from time to time, you know, you have two or three days where you really don't practice. And I begin to get crabby and short-tempered and impatient and querulous. And and then I, at some point it occurs to me, hey, you know, why don't you just stop everything, go to the piano, play a little, see what you feel like. And then, of course, what happens is I find myself changing the schedule and canceling outside appointments and things because... Actually, all along, that's really what I wanted to do was to practice. Because I want to work on that piece, because I can't play that piece yet. It's not any good. So I need to practice it some more, and I like that piece, and you know, and so, you know, like that. I would think it was a rare child to good reason this out. Oh, yeah. One of the difficulties, of course, is uh, 
the onus is on the grown-ups. Some grown-up, some adult, let's say, encourages, needs to encourage the child to practice, which means some imposition of discipline. In other words, look, you really have to practice half an hour every day of the week, or you really have to practice an hour every day, like that, right? And, of course, you can help your child understand that, wow, there's a, that's how life goes, and things like that happen. You know, you have obligations, and you have to do them, and you don't always want to do it, but uh, that can be done in a positive way, or it can done, be done purely in a negative way. So that then, when it's negative, then there's that love-hate relationship that goes on, which causes lots of complexes, which we all know about from musicians. Many musicians have these kinds of things. So the practicing issue is very, very complicated. When I was 16, and I, I knew something about music, but I had no sense of career, and it was also my first time to play a concert and really have strangers come back to see me in a green room. I didn't know what that was. And, you know, and uh, I remember um, a lady came with her son. It was one of the Bernstein um, young people's concerts. And a lady came with her son, and the boy was really young boy. I mean, six, seven, I don't know, eight years old. Very excited and wide-eyed and shining, and he was looking at me, and the mother came, and she was woman twice my age, I'm sure, and people were very nice and very kind, and she smiled, and she said, she called me Mr. Watts, you know, which was weird, and she said, how much do you practice? And I said, oh, about six hours a day, and she turned to her son and grabbed his ear and twisted his ear and said, you hear that? Six hours, you're going to go home, and and I looked at him, I I was sort of in a state of shock. You know, I was a little bit frozen. I looked at him, and the look in his eyes turned from interest, adulation to you, traitor, you, you ruined my life. You know, what, what's going to happen to me? And I actually never forgot that. It took me, I don't think, more than that day, probably the next concert I played when somebody came and said, uh, came, especially if they came with a child, said, how much do you practice? I didn't even answer them. I mean, I was trying to be polite, but I wouldn't even answer them. I would look at the child and say, how old are you? And they would give me an age, and I would say, well, gosh, you know, when I was seven, I probably practiced. And I would either tell the truth or shade it down if, you know, it looked like it was unnecessary. But, you know, basically I, I practiced an hour a day or something, which was not the question that I was asked. But, I mean, you know, it's not fair. I mean, I was 16, and it looked like that was going to be my profession, and here's a child, you know, six, seven years old. How do you know? Well, fine, make them practice an hour a day, two hours a day. I, I don't know. But they have to do all these other things so you can find out what is their gift. That, that This imposed decision from outside, you will be this, you will be that, you will be that. Limiting for the, for the child. And, boy, if you're wrong, very destructive. Let's talk about Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> he was quite instrumental in your career. Well... The unvarnished fact is he basically handed me a career. Basically, out of thin air, from one day to the next, created a career for me. He said, here, kid, you want this? It's yours. You got a career. Bang. Just done because of who he was. He was a great musician, of course, but, you know, he was famous. So this all started with my teacher, Junior Robinor, who one day said to my mother and to me, well, I didn't tell you, 
about some weeks ago, I wrote in to the Young People's Concerts, and uh, I got an answer back, and so we're going to go next week to New York and audition. He was accepted to audition. And I went to audition, went with my teacher. She played the second piano part. Uh, you know, Bernstein wasn't there. I mean, it was Helen Coates and the three assistants, assistant conductors. And I played. I'd actually played two weeks before in another competition for the Meriwether Post, where I didn't even get past the first round. And I'd played really well. And this time I played okay, but I didn't play quite as well as I had two weeks before where I didn't make it. So I finished playing. It was Carnegie Recital Hall. And these four people stood up and applauded. And I thought, wow, they're nice. They probably do that for everybody, you know, because it wasn't, I didn't think it was that great. But then we found out, no, it's okay. You get to the next round. It's only two rounds, you know, that one and then the next one, which was in the new Philharmonic Hall, which is now Avery Fisher. And there was Bernstein. And my image of Leonard Bernstein is very strong because he had his right hand. It was in a sling. It was a black sling. You know, everything looked very elegant, you know, so he couldn't shake hands in the normal way. So he would greet everyone, and he would stretch out his left hand, and he had a really great-looking watch. I remember the watch always. Well, and, you know, look, he was a very handsome man. He was a very startling-looking specimen of a human being. But it was really from what was inside was the force of the persona that there was, you know, all those words, aura, halo, and whatnot, you know, and you kind of were mesmerized. You talk to him and you're just kind of looking at him, you know, like, uh, I don't know, like something magical. So, you know, I met him and, and I, I played. And when I won and I played for the Young People's Concerts, which was the beginning of my having a career because it was on television and because of what Bernstein said, you know, like, this kid is great and... He's going to continue to be blah, 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 whatever. And it was so over the top, everything he said. I played E-flat list, and Bernstein conducted for me. And uh, so that was the beginning of a career.
This was in 19, it was the fall of 62. But people forget that, you know, in 1962, we still had miscegenation laws in this country in certain places of the United States. So that uh, when I, in 63, 64, in 1965, when I went to um, play in Miami, my manager called me into his office and said, you know, Andre, um, I just want you to know just, it's Miami and you probably will have no problem. But you need to know that technically, legally, you and your mother being in a two-bedroom hotel suite, it's against the law in Florida. <laughs> so gives you an idea. So to have Leonard Bernstein go on television and say that, he said something about, you know, what a strange name I have and why, and it still doesn't make any sense because my mother's Hungarian, my father's a black American soldier. But he then said, I like to think that these kinds of international, I don't know that he actually said marriage, but he might have. You know, he was so over the top. Can you imagine actually saying that, advocating an interracial Basically, you're saying it's okay to have an interracial relationship between a man and a woman. I mean, you know, you could get shot for stuff. Frankly, you could get shot for that today. So that was a big deal. I think people forget because they made fun of him for the Black Panthers that he had. You know, it was easy to poke fun at somebody like that. But this was a man who recognized his historical past. So anyway, that, that's something that doesn't get talked about so much. How did you end up substituting for Glenn Gould when he canceled that performance with the New York Philharmonic in January 1963? In uh, January of 63, I was in Philadelphia at the music school on a Tuesday morning, and Carlos Mosley called. I mean, they called me into the office and said, there's a phone call for you. And, I mean, nobody ever called me. So. And it was Carlos. Oh, hello, Mr. Mosley, how are you? I remember, and I can't imitate it. He had the most phenomenal, really heavy, but beautiful, mellifluous southern drawl. I think Carlos was from Georgia or South Carolina or something. Anyway, wonderful, unmistakable voice. And he said, well, he didn't say Lenny. He, he did say Meister Bernstein, although he called him Lenny. You know, He said, Meister Bernstein and I were wondering if you'd like to come down and play the Liszt Concerto with us again on Thursday night and Friday afternoon. This is Tuesday morning. And I remember I said, well, I'll ask my mother. <laughs> well, I had no choice. You know, I just, I, at least I had enough brains. I, I took it seriously. <laughs> I'll ask her if she'll let me go, right? So I went. And the reason that that became such a big deal, you know, I've always had great luck in the, in the big important things in life. Small stuff goes wrong for me, but big things I've been very fortunate in my existence. There was a newspaper strike. And if there had not been a newspaper strike, Time, Life, Ebony, all these magazines would never have sent anyone to cover it. But they sent people just in case it was going to be a big deal because, you know, it was already a big deal that Glenn canceled on the New York Phil because they had had their Brahms first piano concerto. It was the last performance that Glenn had done with Bernstein where Bernstein came out and spoke to the audience and said, I, you know, I disagree with this interpretation entirely, but I defend Mr. Gold's right to this interpretation, therefore I'm conducting it. Well, look, Bernstein is bigger than life. I'm sorry, that's what he was. He was just in every way bigger than life, bigger than than his container and the air around him. So anyway, Glenn had canceled. What is that? So that's 48 hours, a little over 48 hours before. 
And so I got to play. It was a big audience success. And so then I got the kind of press you could never have gotten, even for substituting for Glenn Gould, because of the newspaper strike. Did Leonard Bernstein continue to influence your career? Was he a mentor? I barely saw Bernstein for the last 20 years of his life. Certainly, in many, many, many ways, um, a role model for me for... um, uh, it's an overused phrase, but I don't know what else to say. You know, role model in the sense of absolute commitment to the performance. And at the time of performance, you know, he really didn't care about anything else. He didn't care what you thought of him, what you thought he'd look like, what you were going to say after n- nothing. Only the performance at that moment. It was the only thing that mattered. So I, in January of 63, I did the substitution for Gould. Thursday night concert, Friday afternoon concert, Sunday night recording. And he recorded in one evening Schumann Genoveva, Strauss Don Juan, Liszt Les Preludes, and my piano concerto. It's a lot of music. So we recorded the concerto, and I think we recorded it, maybe we, basically I would say, probably we played it through twice. And then he came to me and he said, look, we want to do from the Marziale to the end, which is three-quarters of the way through the piece, to the end. And he said, now, we have all the material we need. I had no sense of insert one, take one. I didn't know anything about recording and splicing. I know nothing. And he said, we have all the material we need, and you never made the same mistake in the same place. So if you make a mistake, you play a wrong note, don't stop. It'll cost too much money if we stop and start again, and we can't go over the time allotted. And so he said, so whatever you do, once we start, don't stop, no matter what kind of mistake you make, keep going. And of course, it was very easy for me to follow directions, you know, I mean, especially from him, absolutely, yes, Maestro. You know, I heard you, and I will do what you said without question, Uh, without question, without quarrel. So we start, right? And he starts the Maxiale. Two bars into it, he's singing at the top of his lungs, ruining the take. Now, there was no one to impress. There's no audience. The players are not going to be impressed by this show of enthusiasm. He's not interested in impressing. He couldn't help himself. First of all, he was going for something. We're doing it again because he wanted a certain quality. And in order to get that out of himself, he lost himself and he sang out loud. And then, of course, tiny little easy expletive came out of his mouth when he realized he'd ruined this thing and we we start again And for me, this was a, another kind of blessing, a kind of uh, an absolute proof of uh, just 
force of nature music coming from inside him. And no, none of that. Hey, there may have been wild exaggerations of everything, but they were purely exaggerations of what was actually real in him. So for me, this was the big thing about Bernstein. Plus the fact that then I went and I played this same piano concerto, and I mean with really great conductors. As I recall, they were great, and certainly, I mean, they were famous, which is not always the same thing. They don't always go together, I understand that. But, but anyway, these were great conductors. And I played the piece now better than I did then, because I practiced like crazy. And really, it's the same piece, you know, I played it sort of okay with Bernstein, you know, but I played it better and the performance was never as good and never as magical. And it took me a whole damn year. Okay, I didn't play that many concerts. Maybe I only played six or eight concerts. But it took me a whole year to realize, yeah, no kidding. I mean, it wasn't you. Everything he touched, he lifted up higher to another level. I mean, he just had that that same force of personality when you met him and, you know, you were taken by this aura. He had that when he made music. He just made everybody play better. And so it took me... a about a year, first of all, to recognize that and then to try to, well, for myself, selfishly, I don't mean I was trying to help somebody else, but to try to do the same, to try to lift the performance and, and stop just playing for yourself, try to make the piece better the way he did somehow for everybody. So anyway, those are my memories of Bernstein. So tell me, how did you do that? How did you lift yourself I'm interested in the kind of self-renewal that has to come to anybody who's had a sustained career in performing. Well, some of it, I think it really is not to your credit. Some of it, you just have to really kind of genuflect. Look, I'm being hyperbolic. I understand that. I'm, I'm sort of doing it on purpose. But the core of what I'm saying is anyway, what I believe doesn't mean it's so, but I certainly believe it. You do have to kind of get up every morning and genuflect and, and be grateful if it's your nature to be able to see it new all the time. I mean, it is a gift that's been bestowed on you. If you Really, I mean, look, you play Beethoven V, piano concerto, and there's an E-flat chord in the beginning. Really? And you so you played it, I don't know, 500, 1,500 times, and... You go to restudy it and you think, well, maybe there's no B flat in the chord. Why? You know, what does that tell you? It's actually E flat G, right? Oh, so what does that mean for my B flat when I play the B flat? Does it mean more, less? If you can do that without, almost unbidden, if that just comes to you, that's a blessing. And that's not really to your credit. Once you recognize that, then you have to try to use it, take advantage of it, and work on it. And you just have to hear it new all the time. And you have to, I think, hear the piece. At least that's what I say to my students. I know that you know what it does and what happens. And there are people in the audience who know what is coming. You have to play like we don't know that. You have to play like, oh, my God, I thought he was going to look where he went. <gasps> What's that? And what does that mean? What? Wow. You really have to just re-hear all the time. Try to remember what happened the first time you heard it. Aren't you a little surprised? Yeah. Sure. Unbelievable. And, you know, it has to be like you have all this knowledge. Presumably you studied the concerto a lot and you played it a lot. Now you use all that knowledge to go back 
and have that to be the support and the underpinning for the enthusiasm and wonder and conviction you felt the first time you heard the piece. I think that if I can only get a smidgen of that, just can be grateful that you can even like aim for that, if that enters your head. Are there composers that that happens more for readily. you more readily <laughs> than others? Yeah, more easily. Schubert first. Schubert is first in line. You know, my desert island composer would be Schubert. Probably in a simplistic, uh, narrow-minded, selfish sense, I will tell you that because, why? Because, it's probably my favorite composer, because if I'm having a, a lucky day and I have played a Schubert piece and I thought, well, it's not so bad, you know, he, at least if Schubert were here, he wouldn't, you know, kick me. So that was okay. That feels more like salve on the soul, balm for the soul, than if I'd had the same relatively positive experience with another composer. Whenever I, I talk about Schubert, I... I mean, compelled to say, it's his journal, it's Schubert's journal that this writing is from, where he says, every time I wanted to sing of joy, it turned to sorrow, and every time I wanted to sing of sorrow, it turned to joy. If you think about that, that he recognized that in his own speaking, his own singing, his own expression, that's the poignancy that we feel from Schubert, that when he cries, it makes you smile, and when he smiles, it makes you cry. That poignancy is very compelling for me. I like it. <laughs> Are there composers who have grown in stature for you as your career has progressed, who perhaps in the beginning you were less taken by? Sure. Um, it, and and that doesn't mean that I necessarily play mm -hmm. them. But, for example, I mean, Stravinsky. I was never very interested in Stravinsky. But, I mean, you know, and I'm not a total moron, so I have a kind of you know, conventional acceptance of respect for Igor Stravinsky. He is a great man. But I mean, uh, with the passage of time, it's a little bit more internalized, more real belief. And for me, of course, Bartok. Bartok. I was never a Bartok fan when I was young. What a really great composer. <laughs> I mean, a really great composer. Jeez. You teach at Indiana University. Yes, I do. I do where you might know a good friend of the NEA's jazz master, David Baker. Oh, sure. I see. <laughs> He's doing great. He looks wonderful. He's always very elegant and, uh, and gentle and busy and active and uh, quite extraordinary. I'm always so happy to see him in the hallway. We, we see each other very often in, in the corridors. I think he's he does a lot of work on the floor above me, <laughs> above my studio, and so we run into each other often, yeah. I sometimes wonder if for musicians there's less of a demarcation between jazz and classical music than there are for civilians. Yeah, it's interesting. You know what's fascinating? I've thought about it from time to time. It, it's come home to me. I think it's less common or less everyday occurrence let's say in an airport, that a classical musician recognizes a jazz player and goes up to them, whereas it's quite common for jazz players to come up to classical musicians and say hi. It's really amazing. So I think that, you know, there is a danger. Let, let me just talk about pianists, since I'm a piano player. I should, you know, stay with the little bit that I know. 
I think that we classical pianists should remember that there's a danger of isolationism and being narrow-minded because of the kind of practicing and the kind of listening. We would be better players if we listened more to um, different things. It would help our little narrow field. Whereas jazz players are indoctrinated to listen to everything. It's a kind of part of the education at the beginning. That's not necessarily the case with classical players, and it should be. Tell me about your students. I have very few students, and they are very interesting people and and good players. They're very varied, some cross-section of humanity, you know, different people, different directions. Is there any one lesson you really try to impart to them? When I was quite young, uh, one of my manager's associates said to me, said, you know, you should, you should pick everyone's brain that you can. And when people say things to you, don't waste their time or your time by arguing with them. Take, take, take. You can discard later. That's great advice. It's brilliant, isn't it? It really it's is. It's a genius advice. You can discard any time. Just because you listen to somebody tell you, oh, no, young boy, play so-and-so and so. Or you, you go home and you can discard it. But, you know, the non-resistant part of you saying, oh, okay, I'll listen to this person. When you go home and decide to discard, you'll replay what they were told. There may be one little thing in there that will be very useful for you. And you discard everything else they said. That's how you learn. And finally, we see audiences graying, especially Mm. for classical music. And large-scale orchestras in smaller towns closing down, and in, in, you know, in smaller cities, rather, not, not just small mm-hmm. towns. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about that. I don't understand it, and so I don't have anything intelligent to say. Well, I do have a little positive question, but that's on the positive side. You know, I'm going to be 64. A real good example for me is, you know, I heard Rudolf Serkin play when I was 13, 14, 15, living in Philadelphia. That's a long time ago. You know, at that time, the large percentage of his audience was gray-haired people. Now, they're dead. These gray-haired people who now come, let's say, to my concert can't be the same people who went to hear Rudy Serkin. So I'm not so sure that it means, yeah, we may have a little bit less audience, but what it means is that, I don't know, late teens, early 20s, is for the general mass of the population, not the time for classical music. And you get more of that population when they get older. I think that's perfectly possible and reasonable. One of the dangers for classical music is that as, you know, look, finance, the financial world is in trouble itself, and that permeates every other world that we live in, including the musical one, and that as orchestras have difficulty, the simple solution appears to be to stop being classical music orchestras. And I think this is a big mistake. You you know, you you may come up with a weirdo gimmick that doesn't have anything to, to do with classical music, but what will happen is you will get the curiosity seeker for once or twice, who will not remain, and you will lose the people who are your patrons. So I think we have to be very careful in classical music not to uh, look for too much uh, carnival, not too much circus. 
try to stay open-minded about how to present the great music of Mozart and Brahms and Beethoven and Schubert and, and Varese and uh, John Adams and, you know, Corigliano, etc. Uh, I don't mean just old masters, but, uh, you know, I think we should be very careful. There is a place for everything. Well, you're talking about the difference between drawing a crowd and building a community of classical music lovers. I think it's very difficult because, of course, it takes real will to say, yes, we will develop this kind of community. We want to have a bigger community for our orchestra and classical music, to really, which means sustained effort, not superficial. Well, if we do two things like that, we can get this much money from such and such a grant for such and so. No, that might be great. We'll do that. But, you know, we're not going to do the other grant because that other grant has no long-term meaning for us and we don't want to dissipate our energies. We'll do this one because we're going to follow that up. We're going to do two more of those concerts for which we don't get any extra money because this is a great project. This is a great direction for our orchestra to go in. And we'll, you know, that way, that kind of thing, which is, I think, very difficult, you know. I mean, you have to think hard. You have to, you have to push and be willing. It's hard work. That was pianist and 2011 National Medal of Arts recipient, Andre Watts. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Piano Concerto No. 1 in E-flat, composed by Franz Liszt, performed by Andre Watts with the New York Philharmonic, conducted by Leonard Bernstein. Used courtesy of Sony Music Entertainment. Excerpts from Liszt's Transcendental Etude No. 10, performed by Andre Watts, live in Avery Fisher Hall in 1985. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov, and now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, playwright and director Aditi Brennan-Kappel. To find out how artworks in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>